and welcome to TGE, This Guy Edits, the podcast with Tyler and myself, Sven. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing good, Sven. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Getting ready for the holidays and editor's Christmas? Not really. Still early. <laughs> I still got a week of editing to do before I shut down. How about you? <laughs> and seasons don't change in LA, so... No. I'm just, just waiting to hit different weather, and then I'll acknowledge the holidays. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. This is a podcast where we look at clips from different films, give our thoughts on it from the perspective of editing and storytelling. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, let a friend know that you enjoy the podcast. We appreciate the reactions we've been getting, the comments we've been getting, the growing subscribers we've been getting. So thank you. And yeah, if you're new to the podcast, hit subscribe and you'll always know when there's a brand new episode. And if there's a scene from a film you would like to hear, then by all means, let us know either on Patreon or... But, but Tyler... Why would it make sense to look at scenes in detail and explore the filmmaking and editing? I actually have no idea. You have a gun to my head right now. Maybe you should explain. Uh, okay. All right. Rhetorical question, I guess. I think it makes sense because editing is very hard to judge, uh, at least for me as an editor or just as a watcher of films. I can never tell when a film is edited well. I kind of have to assume it is when I like the film, when I'm deeply engaged. Um, but I'm realizing now after having done this, what, 17 times or so, there's actually a real nice benefit of looking at just one scene of an iconic film and just look really, really closely and just forget about being an audience member for a minute and just looking at the details of the craft, which includes camera work, music, all that stuff, and then also just see how, what choices were made in the editing. And I, I do feel like it's helping me understand these films better and it's it makes me think about my own work. And I think even for the listeners, even if you're not an editor, this can be... I think it's it's different and we're different in a way from any other sort of more big picture stuff or analyzing films and characters and stories where we kind of we're just sort of touching upon themes and on the surface. I think it's really, really nice to go into detail. That's my take. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things that I've been really getting into more and more is time compression. So we were talking about the editing in Revenge last week and how quickly she moved down the road. Just looking at stuff like that in different films, how something feels completely right in terms of the timing it happens in, yet is completely different. The diegetic time, the time of the narrative, the narrative of the story is completely different than the realistic time it would take. And yet finding ways to satisfy the audience's expectation when you end one shot and go to the next, there's certain things we want to see. So it's amazing when you really see an example of someone being much further along than they should be or somewhere where they shouldn't, yet that's what you want to see. And it, it just feels right. And it feels like you've experienced that travel. I think that's the most impressive stuff. And that's kind of editing at its, at its highest level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also love when we're like unfolding visually and in terms of the editing how information is being conveyed to the audience step by step how the audience is learning something about what's going on and they're they're constantly being or they're asking themselves what's happening what's going on oh this oh this is how this is connected oh i see what's happening here this kind of stuff is really really interesting when films are made 
cinematically. And speaking of which, I think it's good to maybe reflect on our experience. When you came to speak to my class at UCLA Extensions, I, I very much appreciate the visit. And we basically had this competition that we did where editors would have to request changes to popular films or defend the requested changes using the terminology and concepts learned in the class, which isn't entirely different than the stuff we talk about here. And I was just curious your experience, Sven. Well, I thought it was really, really cool. And thank you for inviting me to one of your classes. What I enjoyed is you basically had two opposing sides and which which usually means you had like a producer who was or a network that was proposing a change in a scene and then you had kind of the filmmaker editor slash director justifying why it was cut in a certain way and i loved how some of the students really took that opportunity and and dig deep on a film like people had just different opinions about how well the storytelling was working in terms of the confusing structure and whether it's like too confusing or it's right on it's that's part of the magic of the film and how they were really like getting into the minutiae of a specific scene and then for me as the judge to be be able to form an opinion based on on how well they were arguing their points i thought was was a really cool experience where you take teaching or being in a class to a level where you really have to think about the decisions that you want to defend. And they likewise learned a lot from your feedback, your thoughts on it, your reactions and reflections. And then your co-judge, Phil Linson, who was a vice dean of AFI for post-production for 17 years. So it was a really cool lineup. Yeah, no, it was cool to meet Phil as well, who was who came after I left AFI, became a vice dean there. And there were a lot of people that we still knew um, that were at the school and we could talk some trash about what's going on, politics and all that stuff was good. Great. Well, and you're working on an exciting new film spin, and I look forward to talking about it next week. <laughs> nice. Can't and wait. This guy edits podcast. You'll be able to talk about it next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's, what are we doing this week, Tyler? So this week, expanding genre-wise, kind of on some of the stuff we talked about with Revenge, I thought it would be cool to do a film that was... Very, very, very based in visual storytelling, mm-hmm. almost a symphony of visuals. And of course, as you know, if you clicked on play, it's Mad Max Fury Road. But the clip we're going to, we're going to be looking at is actually from the Black and Chrome edition. So I was surprised that you didn't even know about this, Fen, but I didn't. after Mad Max came out, I guess it, at some point in the process, George Miller had really wanted to do the film black and white. And once he realized he was not going to be allowed to do that, he really embraced the aspect of color and went for these incredibly intense saturations. And I think it added a great deal to the film. So he got to do a re-release, color corrected for black and white specifically, that he called Black and Chrome. And I got to see, I watched like half of it in the theater and then have seen pretty much most all of it. And I have a very specific opinion on it. So it'll be kind of cool to see the difference between his original vision and the actual finished film. So the the action scene we're looking at is just one that we pulled from YouTube where the black and chrome existed. It's not necessarily the one I would have chosen, but it's still an interesting scene to look at, and I think helps make a lot of these points in terms of the effect color can have. And Sven sees this all the time, and so do I, in editing, how important it is for us to kind of mess with color when we're delivering cuts and handing them off to producers and directors to look at. That can just give you less notes or help convey the possibilities of working with color in this medium, which are pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I regularly bring up the example of when I worked with one director where he had major problems with the film 
And then all I did is I was doing a color correction pass on the scenes, just bringing them down, making them less bright. And immediately he was starting to feel the film without really changing anything in the editing. So it, 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 it matters. It really matters. And you're really going to see that with this clip. And then the other side of that is so funny, especially nowadays, how important it is as filmmakers with how raw and flat you have to shoot digital footage to have that freedom to do major color corrections in the editing room. It's very easy to forget that you need to do that or just look at your footage and think it looks horrible. So it's very important to work with lots and it's very important to put even a basic layer of color correction when you're editing because it's just going to help the film start to feel more complete as you go. Yeah. Same goes for sound. It's just got to look and sound like it is the finished product, even though it might be completely different once you go online and you do your final pass on sound and color. It's just got to create an illusion that it is the final film to start to work. Yeah, and there's no bigger you know, celebration of sound <laughs> than this film either, which is really cool. So I'm sure there's, there's stuff, aspects of it we'll be looking into. For sure. Well, when it comes to Mad Max, I mean, this film has been analyzed to death. And right. there's been so many video essays and, and things said about this film that it's going to be interesting to just look at the black and white version. And I've seen an original version also that wasn't like the final, like the gold version. It was kind of more of an earthy tone, lots of mm -hmm. like browns and stuff that also looked really, really cool, which... Um, at some point was in discussion to be the final film. So maybe that's sort of what we're focusing on specifically in this scene, as opposed to talking about all the eye tracking and all that other stuff where the, he's speeding up a lot of shots and slowing them down. There's, there's hardly a single shot in there that actually has the original uh, 24 frame speed. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of great resources. I actually haven't looked into them very much except for a little bit of effect stuff, but that's definitely a cool thing how George Miller plays with frame rates. Yep really impresses play with me. It throws off like all the ADR in the movie, which is kind of adds another cool effect to it. But it's also something that inspired Mel Gibson. He learned a lot working with him. The original Mad Max films with George Miller, that's basically where he learned about directing. Mm -hmm. So Braveheart owes a lot to George Miller and a lot of other Mel Gibson's films, particularly the scene where Braveheart meets the his future wife for the first time. They very subtly slowed it down just a few frames here and there or sped it up and played it backwards. And it's amazing how just little tweaks like that can really add a lot of weight and impact to a moment. Yep. So I'm curious your thoughts on the color. And my reaction when I went and saw it in the theater was like, okay, this is going to be so cool to see this, this, this really like explosive symphony of action and <laughs> very detailed storytelling told from the way that he originally intended it, but immediately realized watching it, oh, it's not the same movie. And if he'd actually shot it black and white, there's no way that this would have been the movie he made or the shots he would have used. Because there's one incredibly crucial element to the film that you get from the color that you don't at all get in the black and white, and that is that it is in the dystopian post-apocalyptic future, and lack of water as a resource is a huge... That's the whole film. That's, that's the driving force of the entire movie. And so to not have that constant feeling of just a dry mouth in that, that red, yellow baked desert surrounding the film all the time, it really makes it a very different experience. So it's kind of like a cool collected horror film almost more so. And there's like a big aspect of the movie that's missing. 
in the black and white. And it, it's a very, very, very different film because of that. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, let's let's be clear. They didn't change anything else but the color, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks different. It feels more film noir to me, in a way. Sci-fi. Sin City. Yeah. And so the stuff that's really tight plays really well. So like this action scene of him jumping around in the car plays really well. But when we're getting into the wide shots and the, the dust storm and stuff, it's just not, yeah. not the same thing yep. at all. Should we set up the film a little bit? I have some, some info oh, here to throw we in. Sorry. Real quick, Mad Max Fury Road is a 2015 Australian-American action film co-written and produced and directed by George Miller. The film is set in a desert wasteland where petrol and water are scarce commodities. Fury Road was in development hell for many years, with pre-production starting as early as 1997. Attempts to shoot the film in 2001 and 2013 were delayed due to 9-11 and the Iraq War. 2007, after focusing on Happy Feet, Miller decided to pursue it again. He briefly considered producing it as a computer-animated film, but abandoned it in favor of the live-action version. He announced in 2009 that filming would begin in 2011, um, but it eventually was shot beginning of July 2012. And then there were some reshoots, heavy reshoots in November 2013. There was a lot of talk that the film was god-awful at the beginning, like before it came out. There were some bad... Right from Tom Hardy specifically? Bad screenings or something, yeah. And there was a lot of trouble on set, but then obviously it became this instant surprise hit. Well, um, one other fun fact I'll throw in is that yeah. it kept getting postponed. There was an ecological disaster when they were about to film, which meant that all of Australia had this torrential downpour. Not Australia, but the part that he'd scouted out and planned to shoot in. So everywhere he'd planned to shoot was suddenly covered in, in like lush foliage. So everything had turned green. So it seemed like kind of extreme at the time, but it completely ruined the movie. And they had to go find a completely different place to film. So it kept getting pushed back. And I think a lot of that delay... In the shooting, we'll talk about the post in a second, led to this incredibly detailed, it's so thought through. There's so many movies where action movies where it's clearly handed off to this to a second unit director. And that's what's cool is a connecting thread between Mad Max and movies like Revenge is they're so clearly, the action is so clearly directed by the director. And the difference that makes is really, really astronomical. And every single little thing in Mad Max pays off and feels fulfilling, even though it is an action movie, quote-unquote. So that's always really cool, when just little details, like the bloated guy's foot that we just see randomly ends up being crucial to Mad Max, being able to drive, like, jump, get on the roof of the car while the guy's fat foot's driving it. Yep. Scenes and scenes and scenes later, so it's it's really cool. Yeah, and it is in terms of the the visual storytelling, the editing, the pacing, one of the fastest movies, like the action unfolding, is super fast, but at the same time, it's super clear. And it has to do with the, just a the clear focus, screen direction, how things are constantly moving from left to right um, throughout the mm -hmm. first part of the film. And then it switches and goes the other way again. And just how yeah. the eyes are constantly really matching from shot to shot you're always looking at a spot and then when you go to the next shot and the important moving object is right there where your eyes were already there so you you're saving all that time where you need to reorient yourself readjust which happens in a lot of other action films where you're constantly trying to figure out what's happening and then we're cutting and we're trying to figure it out again here you you that work is being done for you visually and through the editing so you can absorb a lot more information much quicker 
And the other thing that's cool is people always talk about the 50 pages of storyboards slash script that are available, but I actually read through them and looked at it. It's really cool to see, I mean, one, the way that it's done is interesting, but two, to look at the film and then look at that script, the pages that are available, and see how much got added in to the finished thing that does give it that unity and like gives Nicholas Holt's character an entire arc. It's really interesting to kind of see that even though everything was set, they were, they were able to play around within it and create a lot more unity and coherence to the whole film. Purpose. Cool. So in terms of the post-production, the film contains <laughs> over 2,000 visual effects shots cut by Miller's wife, Margaret Sixel. And I can't remember, but there's a quote out there where he basically said this film could have only been this successful because it was edited by a woman. No f mm -hmm. male editor would have the right sensibility to cut the action the way that it is being unfolded there. I mean, I'll just let it be what it is. Um, but I think I think there's something to it that she cut this film and that she had a tremendous contribution to making this a success in terms of just working. The film contains 2,700 cuts. Sixel had 480 hours of footage to go through and edit. Hmm. Watching just the footage took three months. <laughs> Which is funny because there were storyboards in the script, so you'd think that would mean there'd be less. But... Yeah, there wasn't really a script, if I remember correctly. There was just sort of a story book or storyboard book of kind the entire of. thing. Kind of. You can look at it. It's pretty, it's pretty detailed. It's really interesting. Like There is actually dialogue for those moments. And it's amazing the degree to which it's there and then the degree to which it gets expanded on is worth checking out. Yeah. And then finally, the film was ranked by many critics as the best film of 2015, and it is considered one of the greatest action films of all time. How many Academy Awards did it get? It ten was nominated for 10, including Best Picture and Best Director, and it won six in costume design, production design, makeup, hairstyling, sound editing, and sound mixing, and of course, film editing. <laughs> an absolute must see for editors and it's amazing it they talk about a movie being the movie with just, with so little dialogue so little character but if you look at it there's a really thorough arc for tom hardy and ev everyone goes on a huge transformative journey in the film every character and yet the way that it's weaved in for him is very 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 editing dependent and surprising that it's as effective as it is. Nice. So shall we look at the details of the scene? We find a scene on YouTube. We include the link in the description of this podcast. You can watch along. We'll count it down and then we'll start explaining what's going on. And we're going to try and make it so that you don't have to watch the scene. You can just listen on it on the podcast. And then we'll go through it one more time and, and do stop and go and explain certain things that we notice. I always recommend that you maybe stop the podcast, watch the scene first on your own, see if you notice anything, and then start again and then watch it with us and see if uh, there are certain things that you didn't notice that we did or vice versa. Cool. So I just realized the clip we're looking at, this dude did the black and white himself, so it's not even George Miller's official one. Oh, bummer. Well, <laughs> let's look at it anyway. There's plenty of comparisons you can find on YouTube. Don't worry. All right. You want to start it up? Okay, so we're going to hit click in three, two, click. All right, so they're approaching this gigantic storm. Firosa is being chased by the main villain who she's escaped the compound of. They haven't realized that they're all aligned, and Tom Hardy is still 
shirts attached as a blood bag to Nick Holt's vehicle. And Theorosa's people haven't even realized that she's betraying them all. Okay, so what are we seeing? We're seeing Charlize Theron in a car. She's looking out. Oh, this is going to be tough to explain. There's so much happening, so fast cuts. Mad Max is strapped <laughs> to the front of uh, one of those cars. He's got that infamous mask in front of him. Um, lots of shots. There's just so much fun stuff going on here in all this cause. Cause and effect is going on through the entire thing. They blow a wheel, so they need to unchain Max. And then I love that sound design moment where the where he gets the keys removed. Right. Where he so he gets uncuffed. Like they have they know that it's important to have that character moment for the protagonist. The sound of that that unlocking and the ringing in the sound design and just the breath that he takes. You just understand so much in all this crazy action. So why did he unlock him? Just real quick. Be- because they they needed to move the balance because the, he they blew out a tire so there was oh, too much weight on the front of the car so they had to move him to the back. Oh, okay, good, good stuff. I just realized I, I don't remember any of the characters' names. Well, neither do I. And I just watched it. Um, so he's going to lose a boot, which ends up being an important thing later on. It's like every little <laughs> crazy thing that happens. We only see that for less than a second. His his bare foot. Yeah. So Mad Max really is getting back on the top of the car he's holding on they're driving through a wall of smoke which is See, like that's a the problem it's the wall of sand yeah it's a sandstorm what's his In intention here he's trying so to his intention is to to just rip nick halt's head off because he's attached to him as his blood bag he's chained to him right so he can't just jump off of the off of the car and Nick Holt's trying to get the glory of stopping Fiorosa's war war truck or whatever it's called but this is where it's funny where it gets strangely boring like in the black and white like all that tight stuff plays so well of him jumping around outside the car but when we get into these wide shots of the dust storm and stuff it's just not it's almost like it it lags in a weird way whereas seeing it in a theater seeing it in color is I even rewatched it in color and kind of had that that stomach sinking feeling of fuck are they driving into this is not going to be great and you almost feel removed from it in the black and white like this truck exploding yep if you don't know pay attention to the center framing like most of the faces most of the action is happening in the middle of the frame which again helps with staying engaged when it's moving so fast I mean there's so much action we don't even have the time to describe it because we're on to the next thing um, yeah, and the way that body bounces across. And, and the thing you're talking about, I think, is so cool. The way that the action's used is it's so much is set up where it's not like, oh, set up and here's the payoff. It's once you realize it's been set up, it's paying off almost in the same breath, which just gives you this feeling that you can't catch up on it, which is really cool. So now Nick Halt is filling the car with fuel because why wouldn't he? Because he wants to go up into <laughs> a glorious ball of flame and destroy Fierosa. And so Hardy realizes he's chained to a bomb that's driving at 90 miles an hour. Does the silver stuff to his face. Again, not as effective in black and white. Punching through the window. Can't reach him. It's just all these great little moments. Now he's going to... Holt can't reach back either because of the chain. It's holding them both up. 
and fuels f- splashing around. He lights the uh, the flare. Somehow it doesn't blow the thing up. Hardy's reaching. The lid rips off. He raises it. He grabs it just in time. So the rooftop the just blew up, blew yeah, open. Just, yeah, just in time for him to go over the top as he raised it to drop it. <laughs> and then the fact it just ends on this torch is such a strong way to go out of the scene. Yeah, so the cow just rolled a couple of times and Max I he's alive. What's, was somehow, I guess he's still attached to Nick, right? Yeah, we, yeah, and that's the great thing. It's like you're just constantly asking questions. What happened? What's next? And then we cut to, you know, this dust covered, this pile of dust. And it's framed so perfectly you can't even tell what's him. Where's his head start? And it holds on it for so long to just kind of let that pacing reset, let the audience catch up. And then he rises up. And it's such a good point storytelling-wise to get out of that scene because then it's like, where are we? And then you're kind of catching up. You're putting the pieces together of what went down in the dust storm throughout the entire rest of the scene. Yeah, which is which is cool. And the scene is over. It's been over for like 30 seconds, but wow, th- we completely were not prepared to be able to describe that scene. I'm sure when you listen to <laughs> our ramble right now, it made no sense in terms of what actually happened on screen. Why don't you talk about the black and white? What you what you think of it? I I mean that first shot at 00, zero I love. I mean it's so interesting i can only imagine what that would look like in the original version on a big screen and Mm -hmm. it works when you have these big scale shots and you have the time to take it in yes Mm -hmm. with color this could be even more dimensional i guess but that shot works for me but i do agree like once we're getting into the action it certainly doesn't help with anything like I feel like now suddenly I'm in a <laughs> in like a different time period even. It feels like I'm thinking about like zombie movies or B movies mm. from the sixties, yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's it feels a little cheaper to me, to be honest. Like some right. of the production value just gets lost. And there are a lot of nods of the B-movie things. And, it, yeah, it does seem like a cheaper movie. I don't think that it's a bad movie. It's it's beautiful and enjoyable in black and chrome, yet it just feels like it's missing a huge character in, in the whole film. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it's because we're not looking at the his version. Maybe there's something he did to it. No, I saw it in theaters. It feels this. <laughs> it's just... And I think if he... It just goes to show when you have a great director and they make choices yeah. it's going to affect everything so he's a great director once he decided to incorporate the color he did it in a way where you know everything in every frame every moment matters in this movie so that's a big thing that that matters still cool to see without it but it's a very different feeling movie yep yep i'm way more focused on the actual action and storytelling and what definitely happened to me just watching it just now, I was sucked in and I couldn't focus on anything else but the story and what was <laughs> happening. I couldn't even formulate the words and I was already three steps further along in the story. So I couldn't even which, try. Uh, which moment were you? did you get most lost in that we should look at? Well, I think it's very complex what you were describing when I asked you why did they uncuff him. I just took this for granted. Like, okay, now he's free. And now they're starting to fight with each other. 
the fact that there's some physical logic to this uh, completely went over my head. There we yeah, go. Uh, so in at 45, we're seeing the, the tire blow. Right. And that's uh, unfolding a whole bunch of things, like cars get moved out of lane and they bounce off each other. I miss that. And then the glory that is this guitar man is just the greatest. That there's a character playing music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who apparently had the most painful shoot of anybody because he was blindfolded and tapped at these bungee strings and going who knows how fast. I mean, apart from what we already mentioned, the center framing, the eye yeah. tracking, the consistent the screen direction. Mm -hmm. I think if you've and seen this film in that detail for the first time, really pay attention to those things. Maybe play it at half speed to see mm -hmm. how from cut to cut, where are your eyes landing and where they're supposed to be in the next shot. Yeah, and the other thing that's cool, like you were talking about the line, how important that is, the line in terms of the screen direction. Yeah. I mean, I never even appreciated that with this, but yeah, that's another one that's up there with Hacksaw Ridge, which we should look at, where it's respected so perfectly through the whole film. They're in a barren wasteland, and you would never at any point have any question who's headed which direction or, or what's going on. And, you know, there's a few directors that understand that's important, their action. It's hard to find better action scenes in this movie, hard to find better ones in... Terminator 2 and those are two directors that know this stuff's important and yep. if they do break it they're doing it for a really good reason I mean I think it's pretty clear I think we're really up against it's just we're at the maximum level here this is maximum storytelling you can barely process that if you have your 100% attention on everything and it works but we're basically outgunned by the filmmaker at this point and that hasn't happened on any of the films that we've analyzed so far the other thing about this, just just the movie as a whole, because obviously, yeah, it's like a great piece of action. There's all kinds of things to look at it specifically. I just kind of thought it'd be cool to look and talk about the color, the effect that has, how that can kind of change the shape of the scene and make moments seem like they lag that didn't in color and then moments almost stronger and tighter and faster, like the close stuff because of the nature of black and white. Um, but thematically, in terms of this just being an action movie, it's funny because thematically there's so much that he accomplishes in terms right. of the statement of the movie, in terms of what we're talking about, resources, power misbalances, all these great points are made and even articulated in the dialogue throughout the movie. And it's just really, it's just why it's a movie that works so well because sure, okay, fine, it's an action movie, but every movie should be an action movie in some way or another. Yeah. Right? This yeah. one's just an action movie with cars moving fast and people swinging around on them and a guitar man. But underneath that, it has whatever great movie should have, which is character arcs, themes, messages. It also has a strong theme of feminism in there, empowerment. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's almost like Mad Max is like a secondary character. It's like Furiosa mm -hmm. is really the, the, the strongest person in the film. Right, and fairly ahead of the curve on that in terms of him handing the gun off to her, all those great moments. She definitely has, is much more, a character we know much better at the end of the film than, than we do him. Yep. I, I got to give it to the film. It's just, uh, I wasn't able to be a participating audience member and an analyst at the same time. I've watched the scene beforehand. I thought I could master it, and I don't feel like I did. But it's, <laughs> it's a great film, and that should be an inspiration to you. This is master filmmaking in every, every aspect, in every discipline. Yeah, and it's one of our longer clips, and it just flew by. 
that's uh, yeah for sure i mean how long was this five minutes five minutes wow i may want to watch black and chrome tonight what a ride all right well let us know what you thought about this scene in particular or the film and give us give us suggestions for other films that maybe are worth discussing here and things that you noticed in terms of their storytelling and we'd love to tackle those i'm always excited to see something that i haven't seen before and if you enjoy what you're hearing if you have friends that have movies that you they may want to hear analyzed tell them about the podcast spread the word we really appreciate it and could not do it without you we would like to thank Curter for the music as always by the way sven where do we get this podcast from you should check out thisguyedits.com slash podcast and you'll see all the links to the different apps and platforms where podcasts are available for free for sure so uh, so check it out and as Sven always says happy editing stumped you got stumped well you only watched it halfway or you said did you walk out or what happened oh no in theaters and then i saw the rest of it oh okay But how do you watch um, it half in a theater? Like, uh, no comment. No comment on the air. Okay. No comment on the air here. I snuck in. What are uh, you gonna do? I see. <laughs> I think I saw Hacksaw Ridge and then literally walked into that. It was a perfect pairing of Gibson and, and Miller, the the pupil and the mentor. Nice, nice, nice.